All right, so we are up to Leviticus chapter 3. If uh, you need a Bible, that we've got uh, plenty of them over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, we are uh, going through this book of Leviticus, and we introduced it by asking, you know, why even study Leviticus? It seems like it's this outdated, outmoded, irrelevant book, but we gave lots of uh, different reasons. Uh, well, I, family Feud did, apparently. Um, <laughs> it's scripture, guys. This is part of the Bible. It's the first book that would even be studied by little Jewish children in the ancient world. It gives us a great picture and emphasis on holiness, both God's holiness and the holiness that he um, imparts and transmits to us. It depicts for us a thick faith, a robust faith, that doesn't just have to do with what we do on the Lord's Day, but our, our whole lives, every day, and how that suffuses our relationship with the Lord. And then most importantly, it preaches Jesus. Yes, the book of Leviticus preaches Jesus. Of course, not directly, right? Jesus doesn't just, you know, kind of sneak in there somewhere and, you know, there's some red, any, uh, red print in the book of Leviticus, but everything about it is pointing to him, the need for him, what he has done for us. We've talked about sacrifice and how sacrifice is, uh, it's, uh, it comes naturally to humans because God has written his law on our hearts. And so across cultures, across places, as the Newtons can attest, having served in uh, on, uh, the other part of the world, cultures that are far away from any familiarity with the Holy Scriptures still have this innate, intuitive sense that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And for them to be Put back together, blood has to be shed. There needs to be blood. There has to be a sacrifice. Leviticus doesn't leave us guessing about that, but instead points to how it is that God, through these sacrifices, reconciles himself, reconciles himself to us. And then last week in Leviticus chapter 2, we talked about the importance of salt. And God says there should be salt in all of these sacrifices. Uh, maybe somebody could just refresh us. What are some of the reasons that we talked about last week? Why salt, what salt symbolizes and how it's significant and why God might include that. Anybody recall or, or other thoughts about salt today? Yeah, Esther. The preservative yes. and uh, makes things endure. Yeah, it's a preservative. It makes things endure. And God, in putting the salt in the covenant, he wants to reinforce for his people that his word endures forever, that his covenant is unfailing, that his steadfast love will endure. And so he says, always put that salt in there. And then we also talked about how then Jesus takes that one step further in the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, he says that you are the salt of the earth. And why is that? What is it about us that makes us the salt of the earth? Anybody um, throw, throw up a hand. What is it about us as the body of Christ that make us the salt of the earth? Seasoning. Seasoning. Okay, so, you know, we're just like the oregano of the earth. Um, <laughs> but don't have too much or it might ruin it. No, well, yes, the seasoning. But say more about that, Hans. Uh, with, the, with your faith, it's not just you. Yeah. It's being spread about. It's being spread about. Yeah, it's, it's flavoring God's word, improving it. Yeah, Bill. Just as salt is from God, we are from God. Just as salt is from God, we are from God. Salt is a, a creation of the Lord. We are his creation. Very good. Yeah, Esther. Well, the idea of seasoning, you know, we, um, because of baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit, yeah. we carry yes. Jesus around with us. 
and kind of season the world. That's right. With Jesus. That's right. We carry Jesus with us. Martin Luther says, you are little Christs because you have been anointed with that same spirit that he was anointed with. So you carry Christ wherever you go. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to the world. To some, it's smelly. It's stinky. I don't want to smell that Jesus. But uh, to others, it is the smell, the aroma of life as we are seasoning and carrying Christ about. Good. Any other reflections or thoughts? Yeah, Pete? Prone to crystallization. Okay, say more about that. Uh, we got to be busted up sometimes. we got to be busted up sometimes. All right, so who is the rice of the earth that we can put into our song? Uh Yeah, that's right, too. That's right, too. Sometimes it needs to be... I thought we got all these flies. I, I don't think yeah. that we realize how much the church, his, his church on earth, is also here to preserve the rest of a broken world. Yeah, say, say a little bit more about that, Bob. Well, you think about Noah for a hundred years proclaiming mm. the gospel to a world that he had already say, said he wished he hadn't created. Yeah. He was so brokenhearted by yeah. his creation, and yet he gave Noah a hundred years to proclaim righteousness. Mm -hmm. In that case, he was salting the earth. That's right. And, and the church is, I honestly believe, our prayers and um, obviously our witness, but particularly our prayers are essential for the preservation of humanity and as we're going headlong toward hell. And this is a, this is exactly right. If you didn't hear what, what Bob said, our prayers are essential for the continued preservation and blessing of humanity, of God's world. Think of that um, story of, of Abraham um, interceding and praying for Sodom. Lord, if there's you know 50 righteous people for 50 righteous people, God says, yeah, I would I would preserve it for 50, 40. You know, do, do I hear 30? In uh, Abraham interceding on behalf of the people, of course, there were none. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. Pointing to our Lord Jesus, our high priest, the one mediator between God and man who has stood in that breach. And because he is the one who stood there and like Abraham said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because now he has absorbed that wrath into himself. The world is not uh, on a necessary road to ruin but is redeemed in Christ. And now you and I, as the priesthood of all believers, continue to be called to stand in that breach for the sake of our neighbors, to pray for them, to intercede with them. God, be with those who do not know you, lest they continue on that road to perdition. Yes. So, a lot here in Leviticus already, and we're only in chapter 3. So, let's continue with the third voluntary offering. So these offerings, so far we've seen the burnt offering in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we had the grain offering or the cereal offering, if you wanted to bring your Cheerios or Honey Nut Cheerios. Um, and here we have what's called the peace offering. Each of these, though, were voluntary offerings. So these were offerings offered by the people of God at uh, periodic events throughout the year, many times um, at the, the three high festivals at which all of the Israelites were summoned to Jerusalem, summoned to the tabernacle and later the temple. Um, so this would be Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And uh, this would be a, a time when people would come, bring their offerings to the Lord. The fundamental one was the whole burnt offering, okay? that, that uh, offering sacrifice of blood. There was the grain offering, which the bloodless sacrifice of thanksgiving. And then here today, the peace offering, which has a couple of interesting, unique pieces to it. 
in particular, it has to do with the meal that God's people would enjoy when they were sacrificing and coming into the presence of God. We'll talk about that. But let's go ahead and, uh, and start here. And I'm going to read, <clears throat> let me begin just by reading the first uh, five verses here of Leviticus chapter 3. It continues, and this is one long run-on sentence in the Hebrew. Just FYI. This is just it's continuing on. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay. Sounds delectable. Uh, First, just a few words about the peace offering in general. So we have in chapter one already, um, just flip back there real quick. You have this promise in verse four of chapter one. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. We have this understanding that these sacrifices are not just a, a ritual. It's not just you know going through the motions, but it's about atonement. And the fruit of atonement is Shalom, shalom. Everybody say shalom with me. Shalom, that beautiful, rich, biblical concept that means peace, but it means wholeness and flourishing, well-being, the way that God intended things to be. And so the shalomim offering, called, translated as the peace offering, um, it comes from that, that same root word of shalom. This is part of the fruit of, of that atonement that we have received, that we have received now in Christ. And just keep your finger in Leviticus. I just want to go to one passage in the New Testament. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, which talks of this peace that we have in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, not the first part of the chapter, which is well known, by grace we are saved, but the second part of that chapter, starting with verse 11, Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice that kind of Levitical language. There's that distance, that separation, but now you are brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our what? Shalom. Our shalom, right? He himself is our shalom, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, so making shalom, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached shalom to you who were far off and shalom to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Powerful proclamation of the peace that we have in Jesus. And elsewhere in Paul, you've also got Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice both those passages spoke of both peace and access. Because because of that peace that we have, the shalom that you and I have with God through Jesus, now we also have access. We've been ushered in behind the Holy of Holies, and we're able to come before him as our great high priest. See, It's a, a beautiful powerful image. What's, uh, yeah. How would you define atonement? Okay, great. So um, George's question is, how would you define atonement? Okay, it's a bib, big biblical word. And this is one that I, I love the etymology of it. I'm just a word nerd generally, and what you can learn with the way that words are formed. And atonement is an old English word that literally comes just like it, it looks like. Oh. Got a whiteboard here. <laughs> At one mint. Okay. At one mint. Okay. So now having uh, been made at one with God through Christ, uh, now that's what the atonement does. Reconciles us, brings us back to God. We have been separated from Him as a result of sin. Now, through the ministrations of our Lord Jesus, through the sacrifice that's been made, we're brought back together. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, Hans. Just, just a, you keep using the word peace. Yes. No NIV uses, or excuse me, uh, King James uses peace. Yeah. NIV uses fellowship. Oh, okay. And I'm just curious, is there a, uh, a question on the translation there, or... Uh, not necessarily. I mean, like I said, the, the Hebrew word is shalamim, um, so it's the plural form of, of shalom. So it has a pretty obvious root in the shalom. But the, did you say that's the NIV? NIV has this. The NIV translation of fellowship is rooted not so much in the, the word, but in the purpose of it. So it would be an offering that was meant for a fellowship meal, okay? It was uh, the sacrifices were offered up to the Lord. And then the uh, food that was sacrificed that was left, not counting the liver, not counting the fat, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, would be um, the, the feast, the fellowship feast, the meal for God's people. Is this the only one that they actually get to partake in? Uh, right. Is this the only one that the people get to partake in? Because most of them are for the priests, like we saw last week. Uh, this is the main one that's, that's for the people, yeah. Um, whether there's other ones, I can't say off the top of my head, but this is the main one. Yeah, Carla. Why is it on this one you can have the male or female? In the others, it's always the male. It's just the male. Yeah, I, I looked into that to see if I could find an explanation for that, and I couldn't. I was wondering the same thing. The question was, why is it male or female in this case? Um, I couldn't find a conclusive answer to that. Anybody have just a, a, a thought or reflection why in this case it might be either one? It might be out of males. Might run out of males. There you go. That's, that's fair. Um, in any event, in both cases, it's still to be 
without blemish, right? Still to be without blemish. And that's really, I think, the main emphasis of it, even more than um, the sex of the, of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing on the translation that's interesting, Hans, is so you have this shalamim is the Hebrew. That's the language the Old Testament was originally written in. Um, but the first translation of it was, was called the Septuagint, uh, which I'll refer to from time to time, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which predates the coming of our Lord, okay, this is in a couple centuries B.C., uh, the way that they translate the peace offering, the Shulamim, is soterion. Let me hear you say soterion. soterion. So soterion literally means the salvation. Salvation. Now, this gets interesting when you start bringing this into the New Testament, and in particular, one moment at the beginning of our Lord's life, where they are in the temple, and Simeon is coming to offer sacrifices, presumably, before the Lord, and you have Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your soterion. Now, we could just translate it as your salvation, which is certainly true. But it might also be the case that there's an allusion here to literally the peace offering. I have seen your peace offering that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Who's prepared the sacrifice? God himself has prepared the sacrifice of his son, the peace offering to end all peace offerings. And now we can just start rolling, right? Because he who uh, gives himself of us, and what would they do after that peace offering was offered up? It would be that fellowship meal that they would enjoy in the presence of the Lord, that Jesus is offered up, prepared by the Father, and now gives to us his very body and blood so that we can share in that fellowship meal, not just you know uh, a congregational potluck, but a sacred meal in the presence of Almighty God. Woo, amen? amen? I mean, there's some rich, rich stuff going on here. All right, let me pause there then. Questions or other reflections from the Shalamim, the peace offering so far? Are we ready to dig into some fat? Okay. So, as I alluded to already, number two on, on your handout, God practices divine liposuction. Mm. <laughs> Yes, I'm being I'm, uh, taking liberties here with, with the term. But he makes a big deal about this uh, back in Leviticus 3, that you, you give this food offering to the Lord, and he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. So in particular, the, the fat, I have not butchered an animal, okay? So I'm not going to pretend like, oh, well, let me tell you what it's like butchering critters, the fat and so forth. Um, what I do know, uh, having read about this, is that it wasn't like all the fat that was in the muscle or what have you. It was like literally the parts of fat that were along the lobes and along the loins and so forth. <clears throat> I'll just stop there. Um, <laughs> why fat? Well, we're all familiar with this idea, and we'll, it'll come up many times in Leviticus yet, um, that the blood is life, right? Life is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11 and elsewhere. This was a common view in the ancient world that blood equaled life. And so in pagan religions, what would you do with the blood? If you believed that it was life, what might you do with it? Drink it. You drink it. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to empty out the blood. We are not going to be like the pagan nations that surround you. And um, I think it was this past Lent 
had a, a series where we looked at the Jewish roots of the Lord's Supper, and um, we looked at this, and why does God forbid his people from drinking blood, and then there's Jesus saying, this is my blood? Well, because he's pointing all along. No, you are not going to be drinking the, the blood of animals. Ultimately, you're looking forward to the blood of my son to receive for your salvation. The life is in the blood. And God says, we're not going to be like the surrounding nations, the pagan nations that do that and think they can just draw that life force. So you empty the blood. Lesser known was that there was also a practice with the fat. Well, the fat was viewed as being a couple of things. First of all, the fat was the strength. Okay? So life is in the blood, strength is in the fat. Okay? That by eating the fat of the animals, you draw on a supernatural strength. And there was also just the sense uh, that the fat was the choice part, okay? That, you know, and that uh, phrase, the fat of the land, okay? Um, this might have roots going back to this. I don't know for sure. But um, this is the idea is that this is the choice parts. This is where the strength is drawn from. And so once again, God distinguishing his people from the surrounding nations says, you're not going to operate that way. And furthermore, you're going to give me that choice part and offer that up to me as part of the sacrifice, we can go even further. It talks about the liver also um, to, to offer up the liver because there's a, a technical term for this. But the liver would be used for divination, um, for making predictions and so forth. This continued. Um, and the Greeks would do things like this as well. They'd have the entrails and get it out there and see, try to read what the gods are telling them through the liver. I don't know. Um, so God says we're not going to operate that way. Instead, we're going to offer this on the altar, and those parts are going to be the Lord's, and then the meat will belong to his people. So God practices this divine liposuction. Questions about that so far? What that would look like? Anybody who, is a, who has done butchering care to shed any light on this process or what that would look like? You, know, you Matt, <laughs> well, Bob, others? I have had some thoughts, but yeah. I mean, one is... Uh, if you're going to take the life of an animal next to the heart, the liver and the kidneys would be two primary places that would be fatal. Yeah. And, and the other is that um, that fat that they're talking about is like, it's, it almost sits in an animal like a, a cushion mm. for the kidneys. They are a little bit more delicate, but being in this fat um, is kind of a, a cushion. And if you are preserving lard, particularly in pigs, mm -hmm that they call it leaf lard in the back that surrounds the kidneys is like the most sought after. Okay. It has very few impurities compared uh -huh. to other uh, parts of the, the pigs. Obviously, they weren't eating pigs, but is that something right. you know of that's... Deer <laughs> are similar. I mean, uh, any animal I've, I've uh, butchered, it's, it's different. Yeah, it is more yeah. sought after. And people don't use deer fat like that for much. Sure, but, right. Um, hmm. The Kankanai still, um, the animists still read the liver. The, oh, the, so um, Bob's saying that these are the people that you ministered to in Papua New Guinea. They, yeah, so that they want to know if the sacrifice was acceptable, the priest would, um, they'd remove the liver after they, and, they, and uh, even the way they um, would kill the pig was very specific. Yeah. But they'd remove the liver and bring it to the Bring it to the priest. And then he yeah. would read it and tell them whether the sacrifice was accepted. Wow. Yeah. Now, remember what we've already read, and we hear it in here, too. How did the Israelites know if their sacrifice was acceptable? What was it that indicated that to them? 
It wasn't reading the liver. It was a certain smell, right? The aroma. That pleasant aroma gave them that indication that it was acceptable. Yeah, Pete. So when I get that aroma when there's barbecue, <laughs> but could some of the guys and uh, gals that uh, do um, butchering and or treatment of animals that they've just hunted, yeah. What are the aromas when you're actually opening up the animals? Oh, not very good. Not as good. <laughs> gotta be careful. You gotta be careful. Okay, even when you're careful. <laughs> is it is it smelly or is it? Yeah, almost like a yeasty smell sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeasty, the fat. Sounds like a congregational field trip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll stick with applesauce. <laughs> oh, my word. There you have it. I mean, this is very earthy stuff, guys. We've, we've talked about this. God is right down in the midst of it. Well, and blood has a smell all its own. Sure. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, God is, is emphasizing, as he'll later in, say in the Psalms, and look at this. This is a great, this is a great passage to, um, to keep, just keep in mind. I think it really reverberates into the New Testament in Psalm 50 of you know, does God, because there was this understanding, you've got to offer these sacrifices because the gods are hungry, in, to put it in like just the crudest sort of way, right? You've got to buy off the gods. It's called sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic. God is not in the business of sympathetic magic. And he, he wants to make this clear in, uh, in Psalm 50. Uh, I'll start with verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Daily they were being offered. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world in its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now, Psalm 50 is already, um, and the, this is all throughout the prophets, critiquing a way of viewing the sacrifices. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, a nifty Latin phrase, um, which was important at the time of uh, the Reformation, and it's just kind of a shorthand, okay? And that phrase is ex opere operato. Ex opere operato. Uh, translated as by the work itself. By, by the work itself. Because one of the things that, that Luther and the other reformers wanted to critique was this view that if you just go through the motions... If you just continually offer up the sacrifice of the Mass, which is how they would refer to what we would call the Lord's Supper, called the sacrifice of the Mass, just by doing that, ex opere operato, regardless of the intentions or the hearts of the offerers, that justifies you. That justifies you. Or in any event, it, um, it helps work on your purgatory debt for a little while. Right? And Luther... In the, in the vein of the prophets of old, rails against this idea that all it is is just, you know, um, just got, all you got to do is just go through the motions, do the work, and, you know, that's, that's enough, okay? 
ultimately, it's a matter of the heart. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so the Reformation put this emphasis on sola fide, right? By faith alone. That uh, it's not just about going through the motions. That at the end of the day, it's about a heart that believes and receives what God wants to give. If all we're doing is offering vain sacrifices, that's exactly what, what they are. Is they're, they're vain if they're not being offered in a spirit of faith. You with me? And so this is very much that Reformation emphasis was reaching back. It wasn't trying to bring something new, but it was reaching back and saying, this is a, this is a continual temptation for human beings to think, if I just do this thing, then God will get off my back. And that's not the way that God works. He is a God of relationship, of conversation, community. He wants to live in that place with us by faith. Okay, so, yeah, Hans. I was just thinking about when I visited Germany, <clears throat> we went to um, uh, the Berlin Dom. And they have services all the time. Yeah. Uh, and there's like 15 people in the, sure. in the Dom seats about 5,000. Oh, my word. Uh, and it's like, it's a state-sponsored church. Sure. It's... You know, they, they're going through the motion by, oh, we're just going to throw some money at it through our taxes. And right. Then we don't have to worry about it. Right. We got the church, we got everything, and everything's going to be good. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, a terribly sad thing. I mean, Lord willing, those 15 people who were there came in faith, and we're grateful for it to, to happen. But, um, yeah, it's a, na- it's a very natural thing for humans to fall into, this sense of, okay, we're just doing it, we're just going through it. And uh, may it never be, right? May it never be. That's why we continually are called to repentance. And I'm not going to say, like, there's not Sundays when we don't come and maybe we are just going through the motions. Like, there's something to be said as a habit, you know, for the ex opereo operato in the sense of, like, it's good just to be in that rhythm um, to put ourselves in a place where then, you know, where the, the heart gets pulled along where the hand goes, right? Um, but that can't be the end of it. That can't be the end of it. Want to continually renew our, our hearts before the Lord. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Psalm 51. Uh, back to Leviticus 3. God continues and says, If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. I mean, this is reiterating the same, same points. But again, that whole fat tail in verse 9, this was considered a delicacy of the, of the produce of the land. Again, the fat of the land is being offered up to the Lord, giving him our best. What are some other ways that God calls us to give him our best? Things you... The other things you think of from the scripture or just other, other ways in our, our life as, as followers of Jesus, where else does he call us to give him our best? Yeah, Becky. Everywhere. 
Correct. Yes, everyone. In anything trick question. you do, do it yes. for the Lord. If you're going to scrub that toilet, go for it. If yeah. you're going to feed your kids, make it nice. Sometimes Lunchables are nice. I'm saying prefer Lunchables. That's right. Yes, but if do your if you have a career, do that. Yeah. If you are washing dishes, the church. Wash them for the Wash Lord. Them. So th- this is right, and that was kind of the, the verse that came to my mind too. That whatever you do, it do it for the Lord. Um, so First Corinthians ten thirty one talks about whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Um, That reminds me of the great Christian Lutheran composer, J.S. Bach, probably the most brilliant musician who ever walked the earth. He was a church organist. Where's Connie? He was was an organist. He was a musician, right? In uh, what's the church? He had several. Thomas Kierke in Leipzig. Thomas Kierke in Leipzig. That's right. Um, Just a, a brilliant man. And when you think about, like, the things that he was preparing for worship, for worship, these cantatas and so forth. Um, but he famously would, uh, at the end of all of his compositions, put three letters at the end. And Ray, I know you, I'm sure you know this. What, are, what were the three letters, Ray? S-D-G. S-D-G. Which means? Soli Deo Gloria. Yes, okay, great. Soli Deo Gloria. That's right. To God alone be the glory. Now, I don't know this for certain, but I believe it to be the case that he wrote that not just at the bottom of his sacred works, but at the bottom of all of his works, his more secular ones as well. He did not make this distinction between, okay, this is something that's for church, and therefore that's to the glory of God, but this is something that's more just, uh, you know, generically beautiful, um, and this is, you know, to the glory of Baal or something like that. No. Um, <clears throat> SDG. And, uh, wow, I just think about what does it look like for us to have that signature on our day, every day? SDG. Soli Deo Gloria. And look, sometimes your best doesn't look all fantastic, right? Sometimes your best is just dragging your carcass out of bed in the morning in order to care for somebody else in need, in order to refrain from offering a, a harsh word when maybe it was, you know, uh, you thought it, it was called for. Maybe it's uh, in those little ways throughout the day that we are able to give God the fat of our lives, right? SDG in all of them. But other, other thoughts or reflections? How we, how we do this? How we... Romans 12. I mean, the best is the ultimate, right? So yeah. present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yes. So if I've given my person, mm-hmm. that's the deepest. So right. everything after that follows, right? Yeah, that's right. Given my person, my very self, that's the deepest. Everything else follows. I think um, practically speaking, too, Bill, I think you had made this point a week or two ago, um, that if we... Don't make, uh, if, if we don't put that first, so just let's get very practical, right? A, a natural one will be with our finances, okay? So if we don't take right off the top of, as God calls us to do and give those first fruits back to him, other things are always going to get in the way, right? If we're like, well, I'll get around um, to giving back to God with my tithes and offerings. We'll see what's left of the budget at the end of the month. I got news for you. Weirdly, nothing ever is left. You know, um, nature abhors a vacuum. Budgets abhor some, you know, uh, dollars that have not already been claimed. And so, um, there's something about right off, right off the top, right off the bat. Uh, I think that in along the same line, there's something to be said for. I'm not. Uh, this is just 
Ryan speaking, I am not the Lord, but I think there's something to be said for having um, a time of, of devotion or meditation with the Lord right at the beginning of the day, too, um, where, okay, God, right here, the, for me anyway, for some of you, that's like, that's my, when I'm most alert. I know for some of you, you're like, yeah, not so much. So for you, the fat of your day might be at the, at the end, right? Um, but I think you take that time, you don't just give God the leftovers of that time of, of communion with him, even if it's 10, 15 minutes a day, setting that time aside to make sure that you connect with the Lord. Um, and then that's able, you're able to more easily, I would say, carry it throughout the day. So, okay, but uh, any other thoughts on just this, giving God the, the best? Yeah, Pete. So I'm struck with this statement that appears here again and again. Um, the priest shall lay his hand on the head. Yeah. Uh, lay his hand. That lays out again and again in Leviticus and also uh, Exodus God's concern that the hands of the priests are busy. Well, it's true, but notice this, and we, we saw this before. Who? It's actually not the priest's hand that's, put it, that's on the head of the animal. It's the one who's offering it up. So now the priest's hands stay busy because they're the ones who are putting the blood and throwing it on the altar. But, I mean, it's still, it's to your point. So, but there's, yeah. a, there's a busyness yeah. such that there isn't room for anything else. Hmm. Uh, Bob's comment about our bodies, a living sacrifice. Yes. That we're all consumed with this service, this service, really servant leadership hmm. uh, aspect of God's call upon our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something else, though, that strikes me, and that is, and if it's not the priests and, and it's somebody else, it's even richer, uh, the offerer. Yeah. Uh, the sacrifice on the cross. Mm -hmm. That head was crowned with thorns. Yes, right. That head was crowned with absolute rejection of this sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's exactly right. And they laid their hands on him, not in blessing, but in vain. So it's a stunning rebuke of what they did to Jesus here in chapter 3 from 4 and 5 on. Yeah. I mean, splattering and throwing and, and, well, I, yeah, and, no. and you know. You're exactly right. And stunning. Let, I, I'll give you one more that I've been mulling over um, there's this verse uh, in the Gospels, in the Passion Narratives, when the, they're calling out, you know, do you want Jesus? Do you want Barabbas? We want Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. Are you sure about this? Pilate, you know, is, is kind of um, going along. Yes. And then they say just this awful statement that has reverberated through history. His blood be on us and on our children. And there's two ways to hear that. The way I had always heard it was just as an indictment of the people, that his blood is on our hands, that we are guilty for this. Another way, a gospel way to hear that is precisely that in the, the gracious irony of God, yes, his blood is on us and on our children. His blood does avail for us and covers us. I mean, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yep. Well, we were putting hands on him, not in order to receive that sacrifice, but instead to offer him up. God, you and 
the Joseph story, right? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, for sure. Yeah, Ruda. Does the killing? Yeah. I always thought it was the priest that did nope. the killing. No, no. They just like left it there and then the priest did it. You, you bring it up. No, exactly. You're, you're bringing it up. I know, right? This is, uh, you ever heard skin in the game? This is what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're coming up. You're doing the deed. Um, usually the, the head of the household is there. The family is probably uh, around as well. Um, but you're going up there doing it. I mean, this is, it's intense stuff. You can't get around it. Well, yeah, Hans. No, you, you mentioned that God does not eat us. Right. Uh, did the pagan religions around their bowel and astra, whatever, right. did they eat the, the fats and stuff like that? I mean, I, I, Yeah, who's, eat, who's eating it? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, that was the understanding. That was the belief. Um, what that actually looked like, I'm not sure. Uh, it's interesting. I've got a picture here. Um, it's not a great picture, but and you could probably show something similar. This is from my time in Thailand, and uh, you'd see this all over the place. There would be little shrines peppered throughout the town. Okay, and again, this is Bangkok. This is a, a modern city of 10 million people. Okay, this is not out in the sticks. This is in, within the city. You would see these shrines scattered all around um, with food that was left out for the gods. Okay, and you'd see random things too, like you'd see pop. Um, different stuff that would be, off, I don't know if that's the fat of the land, um, but uh, that would be offered up to God, uh, the, to, the, to the gods, to the universe, whatever. Um, so the, this was very much, a, a, continues to be a conception for non-Christian religions, I would say. But where does it go, what does it do, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, let me read the last section here. <clears throat> If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all, in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. And as we talked about already, this is very much in uh, response and in contradistinction to the pagan religions and uh, nations that were surrounding the Israelites. You are not going to do as they do, right? You are going to be different. You're going to be distinct. And so in this way, God protects and preserves the witness of his people. So they're not showing that they're just like anyone else in the world. Now this, gets, this continues in the New Testament, um, but it also gets more complicated, I would say. And I want to go to uh, one passage that um, speaks to this in a very kind of direct way, this connection with the food offered to the gods. Uh, so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and Corinth was uh, very much a uh, cosmopolitan kind of, of city. I mean, so it's a large city for the time anyway. Um, there were a lot of pagan temples, and uh, one of the big 
businesses, if, as you will, and one of the ways that you would get some maybe discount meat, you wouldn't go to shop and save and look for the, you know, the day-old kind of thing. You'd go to the temples. And the food had been offered, sacrificed to the gods, to the idols, and then you could get a pretty sweet deal on some cheap meat after it's been um, offered up and, and sacrificed. And uh, this question arose, well, so is it okay for Christians to be eating this food sacrificed to idols or not? Let me just uh, go through this. It's a short chapter. but Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul is, is addressing what seems like a very specific, irrelevant kind of topic, food offered to idols. But this continued to be an issue for the church to make sense of what are we to do uh, about these, this food. And Paul's answer is he's trying to toe this line. And he's saying, on the one hand, look, yes, we know that the idols are not real. You don't need to, to worry about that. But at the same time, you want to be sensitive to the consciences of your fellow believers so that when they see you hanging out at the pagan courts getting your cheap steaks, that they're not freaked out by that. But I don't know. I put that, I put that out to you. But other questions or reflections on that uh, approach that Paul admonishes? Yeah, Bill. I think it goes back to the, the phrase you had up there. Yeah, the ex opere operato. Mm -hmm. If you act, you believe. Yeah. Uh, which is a loose translation of that. But so if if the person who considered themselves to be a Christian, and somewhere in here, it, if you stumble into weakness, in other words, if they start doing it over, yeah. and over and over and over, it's just pretty soon you're, you're going you're gonna to begin adhering more to that yeah. than you are to other. Yeah, that's it. That's right. So this is good. You're, uh, you've encouraged me to give you another one of my favorite Latin verses, Latin phrases here, which is "lex orandi, lex credendi," which uh, literally means the law of prayer is the law of belief. But it's it's basically the idea of what you just said that as you act, as you pray, as you worship, so you will come to believe. Right. And um, Paul does want to address that idea too. Like if you continue to live in this way, your heart is going to be pulled along too. Right. And so be cautious of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been thinking about this and then um, also in Acts where Peter has this vision. Yeah. Um, Acts 10. 
Yeah, and he's talking about rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, for I've never eaten anything that isn't common or unclean. And like him, um, what God has made clean, do not call common. And it talks about, uh, you know, this all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air, so mm-hmm. unclean things, right. you know, he's now told. And when I see, like, Food Network, and you look at almost the crazy fetish with food that sure. we seem to be having in, in popular culture, I do wonder sometimes if we, if there is still a line to be crossed there, mm-hmm. if it's more than just, like, gluttony. But when you see things like, you know, Ice cream made with pig's blood or something like this. You do is that a thing? Oh, yeah. It's definitely. I don't watch enough Food Network, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. It's a common. Yeah, in these tournaments, like, uh, what's one that we watched? Uh, That's not on the British Baking Show. <laughs> well, they would have their own, yeah, yeah. things. But, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do wonder where the line is. Like, obviously, I think in the Old Testament, a lot of these things benefited people from a. Sanitary standpoint, you know, we know that food that's left out gets, you know, diseased and sure. And in fact, in looking at these, all these sacrifices, it would have been the most unless they did great things to keep it clean. Yeah, it would have been a fly maggot infection. Sure, right, nightmare, right, right. In short order. Yeah. So, um, I do. <clears throat> yeah. So what I hear. Find that balance. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is like, um, food can still be abused and God's people still need to be aware of how how is it being used and enjoyed or or abused as the case may be um, but I think to me there's a principle here that extrapolates even further beyond food of really just uh, God's people being cognizant of their witness and how and how they live I have friends who use this very first Corinthians passage to explain why they might watch a certain movie at their home right. that they would not go see in a theater. Right. And I knew somebody who thought, well, that's kind of hypocritical. If it's so bad, why are they watching it at all? Yeah. But their reasoning is they might have the discernment yeah. to pick out the message of the movie right. and not repeat the horrible language or whatever. But they don't want to be a witness to somebody who's weak in the face of, oh, well, it can't be that bad. Sure. It must be acceptable because Mr. and Mrs. <clears throat> so-and-so went. Right. They don't want to be those people leading the weak. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good example. I mean, similarly. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bob. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, similarly, in my time in Thailand, um, uh, among p- the pious Christians, in keeping with uh, wanting to honor their Buddhist neighbors, would not drink alcohol. They knew that they had that freedom in Christ to drink alcohol, but it was such a stumbling block to those who are outside that they they would willingly give up that right. In the company, I mean, they would enjoy it privately, like you say. But in the company of a Buddhist, they would not do that because they weren't trying to stick a thumb in their eye, right? They weren't trying to say, well, look at how free I am. But they, they didn't want, if the, they're like, if this is a stumbling block, it's an easy thing for me not to you know, cause my potential brother to stumble. Yeah. Yeah, big deal about this food offered to idols. It's actually a pagan Lord's Supper. It's a pagan Lord's Supper. That's really what it is. When you eat the meat that you offer to an idol, at that moment you're communing with that idol. Right. So you're affirming that idol. You're fellowshipping with that idol. Right. So that was Paul's biggest issue here. Right. That's why later on in Corinthians he says, if an unbeliever invites you to his house and he puts a stake in front of you, and he says this was sacrificed to an idol. Yeah. Then at that point you choose not to. You choose eat not it, to. Even though you know it's fine. Right. But he's 
wandering. Yeah. At that point, you say, well, yep. I don't worship your God. I don't worship your God. That's right. I mean, this, so this is later um, in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, uh, if my beloved flee from idolatry, verse 14, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It is. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? It is. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Uh, and then he says, so what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I, but I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. Okay, uh, It's pretty strong language that Paul's saying here. So um, this is one of those areas... There, it's not cut and dried always as Christians how how to navigate this and what that looks like for us. But go ahead, Pete. Well, and it's a real conundrum too because back in Leviticus three, the last words, uh, "You eat neither fat nor blood," is a perfect setup to fly in the face of the culture around them. Yes. So I mean, isn't that Christianity today? Things that we do and believe and espouse fly in the face of the culture that's around us. Yeah, it does, and I think. Um, we, we need not shrink back from those things. But the stuff that sets us apart in many ways is an opportunity for witness because it, it's the stuff that causes questions. As Peter says, your name's sake, uh, <laughs> be, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, right? To do it with gentleness and respect, but always be prepared. When we live differently, people ask questions, see? When we live differently as, as believers, not in a prideful, not in a standoffish way, but in a, a way of humble submission to our Lord, it's going to provoke questions. I've already gone over time here. I want to just um, close with this thought, uh, that in his holy meal, the king cements his people's status. Think about what a grace it was that what God does, when they would bring their sacrifices, they would come for these great feasts, it was as though the king of the universe, and this is even how they would pray, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, king of all creation. Uh, they would come before the king of all creation and summon before him as his royal courtiers, as it, were, as it were. And he cements their privileged status as sons and daughters of the king and says, feast in my presence. And so our Lord continues to do for you and me in the Lord's Supper, invites us to his table, says, feast in my presence until finally on the last day, I'll leave you with this, in Isaiah chapter 25, the stirring, beautiful picture of what we are ultimately looking forward to, the wedding feast of the Lamb and His kingdom, which has no end. And what is on the menu? Let's take a look. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, literally a feast of fat, feast of fat things. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. On that last day, at that last meal, the choice things, the fat of the land, is given back to God's people, and what's being swallowed up? Death itself. It's the funeral's funeral on the last day. I think that'll be my Easter sermon next year. Yeah. But yeah, Ruta, go ahead. You, you had that picture of Thailand. Lest we think that all this is just somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On Oahu, 
Mm. It's a cultural thing. They have to protect the shrines yep. of the ancient Hawaiians. Right. And people go out there and they make offerings at those shrines. They yep. bring them food and all kinds of things. Make all kinds and of things. And they're serious about it. Yeah. No, and I have friends who are kind of Christian anthropologists and ethnographers. And they would say, if we look with these kinds of eyes, it's not just in Thailand, it's not even just in Hawaii. Look at our everyday life and see the kinds of oblations and sacrifices that people are continually offering up um, to appease whatever it might be, the life force. Um, we all, have, when we have eyes to see this, it's everywhere around us. Um, but we are called to offer up our lives, our bodies, as that living sacrifice. From a different place, because any good work offered for my repairing my relationship with God is the same idolatry. Yeah. It's still buying God's faith. Because all animism is is bargaining with God right. in a contractual way. Right. And and we still do it. We Either it's it. his blood for us or it's any kind of blood for him. Yeah. But it's one or the other. That's exactly right. Well, thank you guys. It's great to have you with us this morning. Next week, we continue with Leviticus chapter 4. Blessings. Did you share?